had a crazy, mind-blowing experience on the way to church today. I pulled out of our driveway and came around the corner. I'm about where Julia's house is, and I saw a flock. I'm not kidding, a flock of 50 robins. Robins. They might be a little confused. I mean, like the, the groundhog day, yeah. hasn't even peaked yeah. yet. And there's this flock, literally, of robins. I'm kind of wondering, is Julia doing an enchanted? Uh, yeah. uh, uh, uh. I, don't, I don't know what's going on. But anyway, yeah. all these robins, it was, it was crazy. I don't get it. But yeah. My weird experience on. of the morning is showing up and realizing that apparently there's a dress code? staff dress code. Yeah, there it is. Both, uh, doing it today. There, so that's cool. there it is. There it is. So, yeah, fun, fun morning. I, I went again this time in between services to grab Emmett. Last week, I was told I needed a tag. So this week, I, I printed ahead of time. But what I learned is I just, I just printed oh. whatever I wanted to. <laughs> and, and Jesse looked at it and was like, that's not the right tag. And I said, let me in or you're fired. And she let me in. <laughs> so... It worked. It worked. I've always wanted to try that. It worked. But anyway, it was good, good to see the kid and good to know that our, our security measures are in full force. So yep. what's not working really well this morning, sometime between the beginning of church and the beginning of this service, our well got a little bit unhappy. So because of where we're located, we're not on city water. We're on well water. And right now the pressure is at about 10% or at about 10. So, so if you've tried using water throughout the building, recently you were wondering what you did wrong. You did nothing wrong. We're going to have to call the well guy and find out what's going on. So, so just be aware of that. You go to get a drink today and you're kissing the fountain. That's what's going on. Our, our water is slowly diminishing. That's, what, that's what's happening there. So it's, it's funny, you know, you go to seminary to go and become a pastor. And I mean, Yes, you, you sure learn a lot, but they need to have classes in plumbing, in electrical, in lighting. And they, need, they need all these classes. It would be, it would be incredibly, happily, uh, incredibly helpful, incredibly <laughs> helpful. So uh, this past week, you, you went on a little interesting journey. Yeah, so uh, Riley and I met in 2010, and since that time, she has seen me sick once, literally once. I'm, I've and I don't say that to brag. I feel very fortunate. Like, I don't know what it is about my immune system. I don't know if it's that I eat off the ground enough that it keeps me up or if I, you know, dealing with junior hires and high schoolers week in, week out, you know, doing all these weird food challenges, it just like shocks my system so I don't get sick. Uh, but yeah, this, uh, this Monday, we celebrated mom's 60th birthday. And I cooked. Keep that in mind. Yeah. I get home and I'm like, hmm, something doesn't feel right. And, uh, Sure enough, within a little while, there were things that I had eaten that I was seeing again, mm -hmm. and then that continued throughout the night, and I actually texted, uh, not just you, but because I, I was checking to see, like, is anybody else, like, is this food? Is it, like, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. And it got to about midnight, and I, I texted Chad over at the school, and I'm like, hey, this is weird. I usually don't do this, but I'm sick. Like, I don't know what's going on with my body. I can't do anything. Um, so yeah, Tuesday and Wednesday were long. They were yeah. long, yeah. long couple yeah. days. But luckily, um, I was banished to the basement, 48 hours in, out, um, lost a few pounds, which is good. Pants are fitting <laughs> a little, little, a uh, little better. Um, but um, the, all that to say, I want to give a, a quick shout to our student team because in that, the show must go on, right? Uh, Refuge had, we had plans for Wednesday night. And I actually messaged them and said, hey, you know, I'm for the first time in my memory. Like, I, I don't even remember the last time I was sick. 
but um, we, may, we may just have to cancel unless you guys want to, to run the show. And almost immediately, they all, nope, we're going, we're going, we're going. And they just filled all the different spots and roles. And uh, I say that because they, they also did something. We're going through, um, on Wednesday nights, we're going through the Great Commission. Um, so Jesus' final message to his disciples as he's ascending into heaven, telling them to go to the ends of the earth. What does that look like for our kids? And we're, st- we're also memorizing Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 8. They did a huge memory verse game. Sherry was uh, just, we were talking in between services. She said there's, you know, almost 40 kids there, which is, that's a lot. It's a big yeah, group to, yeah. to have kids doing, you know, activities the whole night. And so again, the reason I bring this up is to just give a big shout to, to all the volunteers, not just for Refuge, uh, but for any kids program. If you have a kid in one of the Southfield programs, just know they're incredibly well taken care of. It's not just the, the face or the person who's, running the show. It's all of our, our mm-hmm. volunteer teams because mm-hmm. they, they absolutely killed it on Wednesday night. We're actually down another person because Dora wasn't feeling well uh, that night either. So they, they picked up the slack, they killed it. And so again, big shout to everyone who volunteers with our, our kids and our students. Agreed. Great. You got your weekend update uh, this week. And as you did, there were just a couple of things we want to cover there. We want to, we want to get moving because we got a lot to talk about this morning. But uh, groups got started with going deeper this week, so there's still, you know, that first group was primarily a hi, what's your name, get to know you time. We've not, this is the week that we actually dive into material. So if you're still thinking, man, I'd love to get into a group, stop at the Info Hub on the way out, talk to them, we'll see if we can get you lined up for a group. If you didn't get a workbook yet, get a workbook, because I tell you what, those, those four days of devotionals, it, it creates a good habit within you of getting into the Word of God but, I mean, I, I, found, I found the devotionals this week to be incredibly mm-hmm. meaningful, diving into different parts of Scripture, places that I wouldn't necessarily go on a daily basis. So it was a, a really, really helpful experience. So I hope you'll, you'll do that. But I want to get right to this morning, uh, the first part of our teaching. In going deeper, we're looking at theology. We're looking at the, the doctrine, the things that we believe. I think it's really helpful when we're looking at what we believe to also know what we don't believe. And so we're, we're actually go, just going after some classic heresies. And remember, a heresy isn't just we don't agree theologically, so you're a heretic. Uh, a, a heresy is, well, give me, what, what, what makes something a heresy? An, an outright... Um, Sorry, I shouldn't have done hard. that to you. Yeah, yeah. But an outright contradiction. An outright... Um, we are purposely going against what the teaching is or what the belief is. Uh, it's a direct contradiction to, in our case, the, the Word of God, uh, whether it comes to the, the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the nature of the gospel, something that is just completely unbiblical, untrue. If you followed that, that, that heresy to its logical extreme, you would not have God. Right. You would not have the gospel. You would not have the ability. So it's not just a difference of opinion. It is an undoing of basic theological beliefs. So today we're going to start with one that was prominent actually prior to the New Testament. It was going on prior to the coming of Jesus. It was more of a philosophical movement and something of a religious movement. And it's called Gnosticism. And in that word Gnosticism, you see buried the Greek word gnosis, and gnosis is the word for knowledge. So this whole, this whole way of thinking, this whole heresy was not just based on knowledge, but what was referred to as secret knowledge. 
You had to have this secret knowledge in order to uh, come to the place that, that, the, that the supreme energy desired for all of us. So um, go ahead and give, give this definition. Why don't you read that for us? It's a religious movement teaching that knowledge and a pure life could free people from the material world which was created by an inferior God called the Demiurge. Now this gets a little weird, okay? You have, you have a God, but the God is not a personal God like ours. The God is more of an energy, a force, a, a, source of, a source of power, which is not unlike a lot of the teaching. A lot of New Age teaching talks about tapping into energy. Not too long ago, I had somebody who was talking about something, and they, did, and they didn't tell me that they were praying for me. They said, I'm sending positive thoughts your way. And I said, well, you might as well hand me a Kleenex because that's not going to heal me. I need something more. So positive thoughts, energy isn't a game changer, but Gnosticism taught that. And a lot of the religions or philosophical movements of our time teach similar. So they believe that this, this force out there is a force for good, but then there were these minor forces, kind of gods, called demiurges, who went around just creating mischief. And so they'd create a world, they'd create a world just for fun that was an evil world to kind of counter what was going on with the ultimate force. And the ultimate force is getting frustrated with that, and there's kind of this cosmic battle going on between the two. So they believe in this concept called cosmic dualism, where you have this battle going on between the supreme energy and these demiurges. Now, because of that, the teaching is every Everything related to the material world is evil. Everything. So no matter what you touch or look at in the world, if it's physical, it's evil because it was created by an evil demiurge. And, and the truth of Scripture is that material things are not evil. Material things are neutral. It's what we do with things that causes it to be used for good or used for evil. So it's like that misconception people often say that money is the root of all evil. Uh, but no, if you, if you read it correctly, it's the, for the love of money is the root Exactly, of exactly. So even as, even as Christians, we can get this mixed up sometimes. We think the material thing is the bad thing. No, it's what we're doing with the material thing that can be good or can be bad. So they believe in something called strict asceticism, which is basically a way of saying you should do everything you can to remove yourself from the physical world. Eat as little as you can because food is evil. Whatever you need to do to remove yourself from the physical world, do it, because that'll put you in touch with the supreme energy. Uh, they believe in a repudiation of all of material creation. All of material creation is evil. So then Jesus comes along, and they're fascinated by Jesus because he seems like he might, his teachings sound like that of the supreme energy. It sounds really good. So they create what is the real heresy of Gnosticism, Christian Gnosticism, which is docetism. And docetism is the belief that Jesus came, but he didn't come in a human body, in human form. He was more like an apparition. You could see him, but he wasn't, he wasn't human like us. He can't be human like us, because if he's human like us, he's in a physical body, and a physical body is evil, and he can't be evil and good at the same time. I immediately feel bad for doubting Thomas in that oh, scenario. <laughs> Just like, yeah, it doesn't work, right? Touch, no. So not only is his body an apparition, so to speak, but his, but his sufferings are only apparent. He can't suffer because he can't go through what is bad because he's this supreme good energy instead. So what, where it really gets interesting is that much like teachings of our time, they believe in the, the existence of a divine spark in every human. 
Every human has been implanted with this divine spark. And the only way you can discover your divine spark is through secret knowledge. Secret knowledge unlocks the divine spark. And as you're reading Paul, there are several times that he's kind of combating this idea. People keep wanting to throw in that there's, that there's a secret knowledge that can be had. And if you tap into this secret knowledge, you can see things that nobody else can. Now, what's ironic and fascinating, that kind of teaching has come all the way down to our own time. I mean, the matrix, the red pill. What does the red pill do? Gives you the, the knowledge that nobody else has. You can see things that nobody else can. I don't know what it is about human beings that we always like to just be a little better than everybody else. <laughs> I've got something you don't have. And so there's this longing. And again, part of the reason we're looking at these is because Satan is the first recycler. What goes around comes around. So even though Gnosticism is over 2,000 years old, we see it even in our own times, in movies like The Matrix, sorry to bug some of you, even in Star Wars, you see not a personal God, but a force, a source of energy, a source of, a source of some sort of divine power, which again, totally messes up who God is because God is not just a, a source of power. God is personal and God is loving and caring and good, all of those things. So, um, just go ahead and kind of read that one because, again, recycles what we've been talking about. Gnosticism teaches that humans are divine souls trapped in a material world created by an imperfect god, the Demiurge. The Demiurge may be depicted as an embodiment of evil or imperfect and inadequate. This Demiurge exists alongside other or another remote and unknowable supreme being that embodies good. And then finally, this much longer paragraph. In Gnosticism, the goal is to obtain freedom from the shackles of physical existence and the material world, and to thus attain eternal life in a spiritual reality. This freedom is obtained through knowledge. Mm -hmm. This special secret knowledge about the nature of physical reality is not learned, but rather comes only through revelation, whereupon the divine substance, variously called spirit, soul, and spark, placed within each human by the highest God, without the lesser devil, evil demiurge knowing about it, is awakened and begins to its ascent homeward to the kingdom of light. So what I love about studying Gnosticism is that there's going to come some point that you're either watching television, somebody's given you a cassette to listen to, or you know, a podcast, but anyway, somebody's given you something that you, they want you to listen to, and you're, and you're listening to it, and you're like, this sounds religious, but something smells hinky. And the hinky thing you're selling, smelling is the lie of Gnosticism, the lie that there is this divine spark, the lie that God is a force. He's much more than that. So, or even the idea that this secret knowledge will place you in a better spot than someone else. So we're looking through uh, who God is this week, specifically God the Father. And as we do, we're going to be looking at something called his attributes, also known as his divine perfections. You have attributes. You have pieces about you and your character or whatever. We can say, this is who you are. Well, as you look at the video this week in your group, we're going to be talking about many of the attributes of God. They're defined as communicable and incommunicable. So it's like, wow, those are big words. Until you really think about it, what's a communicable disease? Well, as we've learned over the last couple of years, or at least I've learned over the last couple of years, communicable, communicable means that it's shared by the community. It can be spread. It can be spread. It can be spread. So a communicable attribute is one that is um, God has it and so do we. 
God is love, we have the capacity for love. God is wise, we have the capacity for wisdom. So he shares those with us, but he also has some that are incommunicable, they're not shared. For example, um, God is omnipresent, I'm only present in one place at one time. So there are pieces of the nature of God that are, that are different than who we are. And that should have said communicable and incommunicable, but I corrected it and didn't get it replaced. So anyway, you'll be going there. And as you do, we're going to be looking at a lot of pieces of God. And like I said last week, when we talk about theology, a lot of us kind of go, okay, I'll, I'll work my way through this. And then there are several of you that are going, this is the best thing I've ever done. I'm loving this. I'm on a roller coaster. It's, you know, I'm, and you're fascinating and you want to learn more. And I'm just telling you flatly, the worst thing you can do is just Google your questions because there are a million nuts out there. You don't know who you're listening to, right? So I want to be referring you to resources that are good, solid resources. I happened to be um, a student at Trinity Divinity School in Deerfield during a season of some of, I think, the best evangelical Christian thinkers of our time. I got to sit through classes with D.A. Carson. This man, he's so smart that his head kind of tilts, his brain is that heavy, and as he's talking, it's like his every word, you're like, oh my word, I'm just learning and learning and learning. Brilliant, brilliant man. In fact, some of what we're going to look at this morning, stuff that I learned in class with him about compatibilism, just a, a brilliant man. Another one who is actually my advisor at Trinity was Wayne Grudem. And Wayne Grudem is, again, just fascinatingly brilliant. This fellow has a photographic memory. He could quote Bible verses in all kinds of different versions, and then all of a sudden he's kicking over to the Greek from memory, just that kind of guy. Uh, not, not a whole lot older than I am, but he's a prolific author. And so one of the things he did is put together uh, what's known as, what we talked about last week, a systematic theology. So perhaps you're wanting to learn a whole bunch more about theology. This is a great book. It's called Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. It is also fantastic for pressing flowers <laughs> and doing other things that require tremendous weight. It's a weighty book. Light reading. So <laughs> the, the, the publishers were smart, and they said, not everybody will want, boom, this heavy a book. So they took that book, and they, and they thinned it down just a little bit. So instead of Systematic Theology, this one's called Bible Doctrine. Bible Doctrine is the same book, less words. You can see it's thinner. And you're like, that's still a little too heavy for me. So then they remade it into something that is called Christian Beliefs. Now we're talking. I can read this in an afternoon, right? I'm getting there. And a lot of the same things are there. And you're like, yeah, but books, schmucks. Okay, so how about the crib sheet? So you can literally buy just a sheet of the definitions and thoughts from the book. There's something for everybody, I promise you. But Biblical I'd, ACT prep. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but I'd be leaning into someone like Wayne Grudem, um, D.A. Carson, people like that have done brilliant writing. And you know, you're not going to agree with everything they wrote, and that's okay. It's not the Bible. It's a theology, but it's a solid evangelical theology. So... In order to dive into uh, the doctrine of God this morning, I want to look at Exodus chapter 3, this beautiful encounter between God and Moses. And in this encounter, God reveals himself to Moses. He lets Moses know who he is. So, Brian, you're going to read Exodus chapter 3 for us. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. 
When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that, to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Thanks. So studying theology, especially studying the doctrine of God, not only, not only stretches our mind, but it stretches our heart and our relationship with God. When I was a little kid, the church I went to was great at teaching basics of, of theology and doctrine. And so literally, in, in elementary school, in our Sunday school classes and whatever, we learned, we learned the omnis. We learned that God was omnipotent, that God was omnipresent. We, we learned these, these pieces that he was omniscient. And, um, and just words that have been with me all my life, as I've been reflecting on this particular topic this week, I went back and looked again at the, at the definition of omniscience. Omniscience, simply put, is God knows all things actual and possible. Would you stop and think about that for a moment? God knows everything that has happened and will happen. But he not only knows everything that has happened and will happen, he knows everything that could have happened. He knows every single possibility along with everything that has happened and will happen and is happening now. And here's even more mind-blowing. He knows it all simultaneously. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm laying in bed last night and I'm reflecting on this reality of the omniscience of God. And I'm not kidding. I'm having this quiet, because Kim's sleeping, quiet moment of worship where I'm, I'm bordering on tears just thinking, who are you? Who are you, God? That you can know, you can know everything past, present, and future, but you can know every possible thing and you can know it all at once. Who are you? That's a piece of what should be happening in our hearts as we study God. That we just start having this, this moment of fascination that, are, that our minds are stretched and our hearts are stretched and we start embracing you are oh my goodness, to call you amazing, it, it, it doesn't do enough. You're a mind-blowing, a mind-blowing God. I've got to skip ahead a little bit because these slides, 
were the corrected version right there. So as we're looking at God this week, I wanted to look at Exodus chapter 3 because it's, it's, a, it's a divine encounter. It's an encounter with Moses. Moses, uh, who was born as a baby into, into a nation that was in slavery. And, you know, we look at that slavery from a human perspective and we think, how awful. But God was actually up to something. He took a nation that numbered 70 and he brought them to Egypt where they were in the greenhouse of Egypt, where they were, where they were protected by one of the superpowers of the time. If that little nation of, of 70 had stayed among the, the Jebusites and the Hittites and the termites and all the otherites, they might have been devoured. But instead, God places them in Egypt where they have the chance to go from 70 to a million by the time they're leaving Egypt. He puts them in that, that protection. And even as, even as Pharaoh oppresses them, they just expand more. They just grow more under the oppression. So, so God, in his brilliance, has his people protected, and it's time for them to be rescued. They're now large enough to live in that promised land. And so he, he brings Moses into the world at a time that little baby boys are being killed by Pharaoh, and mom rescues him, puts him in the Nile River. And of all things, Pharaoh's daughter comes along and says, oh, look, a baby. He's so cute. Takes him home to Pharaoh, raises him in Pharaoh's household, raises the man who will rescue Israel right under the nose of Pharaoh. I love God. He does things that are just kind of incredible and mind-blowing. Moses grows up, and he becomes an adult, and he's looking around, and he sees the oppression of his people, and he sees an Egyptian going after a Jew, and so he goes, and he just kills him, and he gets spotted. Pharaoh hears about it. Pharaoh wants to kill him, and so Moses has to flee. He goes into exile, and for 40 years he learns leadership, real leadership skills, not under John Maxwell at a seminar, but by tending sheep. Tending sheep, he learns what it's all about to be a leader. We don't know it's not in the Bible. We don't know up until now what Moses' relationship is like with God. We know that his mom had influence over him, that he would have known of Jehovah, but we don't know if there's been communication with God up to this point. What we do know is that at 80 years old, he's out tending sheep one night on Mount Sinai, and he's walking along there, and he sees a bush, and the bush is not burning uh, the bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. Now think about it. He's 80 years old. My mom is 80 years old. If my mom came home and said, you can't believe this, Dennis. I went today, and there was this bush, and it was burning, and it was not burning, and then it started to talk to me. We'd probably be starting to look at homes, right? I mean, we'd be, we'd be a little nervous about what's going on with mom. Here's Moses, and he sees the bush burning, but not burning, and then the bush starts to talk to him. And in that moment, he has an incredible divine encounter and in that divine encounter, God not only gives him instruction, but God starts to reveal to him exactly who he is. So we're going to look at, at four words today that we can think through when we're contemplating God. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, he's going to give us some of these $59 theological words. No, these are shorties. These are small, and they're words that you use every day, sometimes several times a day. The first word I want you to think about when you think about God is the word here. God is here. God is, God is right here, right now. He is here, absolutely here. I, Moses goes over, and God calls to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, that same God is here today. The exact same God. Doesn't speak the same way. You probably haven't had a tulip talk to you recently or something like that, but God speaks to us. 
He's spoken to us through the coming of his son. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through the power of nature. He's speaking to us all the time. God is here. God is very, very real. It was Moses who penned the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Make no mistake, he is there. He is real. Psalm 90, this passage I love so much. Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. This God is real, and this God has not remained silent. I love uh, Francis Schaeffer, a, a philosopher and theologian from the last century, brilliant man, and he wrote a book. He is there, and he is not silent. This God speaks. He speaks. He has a message for us. He has, a, he, has a, he has things he wants to reveal. He spoke to Moses from a bush. That speaking is known as revelation. Now, I know there's this book at the end of the Bible called Revelation, totally different from Revelation. Revelation is being revealed. God lets himself known. He didn't create everything and just step away. He lets himself be known. And he let himself be known to Moses through giving him a name. And his name, I am. Which at first you're like, what? What? I, I don't get it. Oh, I totally, you totally get it. He's saying, I'm here. I'm present. I'm real. Don't miss this. I exist. Don't you dare not catch that I am existence I am, I am, he says to Moses. When they ask, who are you? I am who I say I am. That's what you say to the people. Say to the people, I am Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the one who sent me. This is my eternal name. I am my name to be remembered for all generations, including 2023. God is. Now, when we're looking at this I am nature of God, there are two words that help to describe his presence among us. And those are the word transcendent and imminent. God is both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent gives us the idea of his relationship with the creature, that he's distinct from the world. Imminent, he's in relationship with what's going on in the world. So let me just define it a little further. Transcendence, God is distinct from creation. God is not part of it, for he made it, and he rules over it. God is far above the creation in the sense that he is greater than it, or he's independent from his creation. There are some, and we'll look at this in a moment, there are some who believe that, that God is everything. God's a chair. God's mark. God's the roof. Everything is God. Transcendence says, oh, no, 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 no. God is separate from his creation. He's transcendent from it. But the problem with transcendence alone is we'll push God way out here and forget that God is also imminent. He's involved with his creation. Creation is continually dependent on him for its existence and its functioning. The God of the Bible is no abstract deity removed and uninterested from his creation. So while he is not part of his creation, while he is not the creation, he is Day by day, intimately involved. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows how many robins were near my house this morning. He knows all the details and cares about all the details of his creation. Now, here's where things start to break down. If you decide God is neither, neither transcendent nor imminent, you've basically decided God doesn't exist. So you're a materialist. Materials deny both that God is out there and that God is in here. The pantheist 
Pantheist denies, denies transcendence. So they don't believe God is out there. They believe God is everything. Everything I touch, everything I see, everything I feel is God. So it's a heresy. And deism equally is a problem. Because deism says God is only transcendent. He's not imminent. He doesn't interact with his creation any longer. God is both transcendent and imminent. He is both above or apart from his creation, and he is intimately involved with his creation. So he wants to be clear to Moses. He says what? I am with you. I'm here. Jesus, I am with you always to the end of the age. Don't miss it. It's not just God out there. It's God right here, right now. God is with us. So God is here. It's one thing we need to know about God. Second thing we need to know about God. God is holy. He's not only here, but he is holy. So the bush says, Moses, Moses, here I am. And the next words, just like a good mom, take off your shoes. You're getting the place all dirty. Take off your shoes. The place you're standing is holy ground. I am, the, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And it says at this, Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. He was afraid to see the holiness of God. God is incredibly, absolutely, and completely holy. Holiness means that he is separated from sin and he's devoted to his own honor. He can have nothing to do with sin. He's completely separate from sin. And in this we see both a relational quality, his, his separation from sin, but also a, a moral quality in that he's devoted to sinlessness. He will not sin. He won't be in the presence of sin. And because of this, Moses has a reaction. And his reaction is fear. And you're like, wait a second. I'm not supposed to fear God. I'm supposed to love God. God is love. I'm supposed to feel a, a warm cuddle every time I think of God. And yet, and yet the Bible's saying, when I reflect on holiness, there should be a sense of absolute respect, a fearful respect for the nature and character of God. Holiness evokes fear in unholy people. Now, having said that, God is holy, but then you go over to a passage like one of my favorites in Psalm 103. It says, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and rich in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. For he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repass according to our iniquities. As for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Notice the combination there. Love for those who have that, that fear, that, that respect for his holiness. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. As the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we're only dust. So God is intensely holy. And at the same time, God is loving, and God is merciful, and God is compassionate and leads to God's forgiving us. This morning as I'm listening to the one-year Bible, I came across a verse that, that was actually already on my mind for this particular sermon. In Psalm where, 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 where David says, who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord? Only those who have clean hands and a pure heart. And he wasn't saying, go wash yourself up. He was saying, though he didn't even realize it yet, only those who have entered in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, only those who have been forgiven of their sins can enter into that kind of relationship with God. Because when, when Christ pays for my sin, when I receive that payment for my sin, I am holy in the eyes of God. 
Not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, because of what Jesus has done for me. And so I can share in God, I can be in God's presence because now I share in the holiness of Christ. So God is here and God is holy. Another thing, God is the same. This would make an incredible song, right? Same God, I mean, just awesome. He's the same God. He wanted to be known to the people. This God who's speaking to you today is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. We worship the God of Moses. We worship the God of all the Old Testament prophets. We worship the God of the people of the New Testament. We worship the God of all of the centuries. We worship the same God. He is the same God. But there's also another part of his sameness, and that is that God is immutable. God's immutability. He does not change. Doesn't change. For Kim's birthday, I, I, you know, I struggle. What do you, what do, you do? What, what, what can I do that's meaningful? What can I really say in order to have a meaningful connection with her? And so I, I went to the store, and I'm looking at cards, and cards are like eight bucks. This is nuts. And they say stupid stuff. So I said, forget the card. I wrote a letter, and I put $8 in it. And I, I just, I said, I, I got some things I got to say to you, all right? And I said, Here, here's what you need to know. I am not who I was because of you. I am told, and I'm thankful, but I'm not who I was because of you. I am a completely different person than I was at 22 years old. God cannot look back in an earlier time of existence and say, wow, I've really changed. God has always been exactly the same. He doesn't love more today than he did yesterday. He's not a little more holy than he was before. He is always completely the same. He is immutable. God is unchanging, and Scripture declares it. God is unchanging. Numbers says God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Malachi 3, 6 says, I am the Lord. I do not change. James, over and over in the New Testament, says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Or even the writer of Hebrews, who writing of Jesus, said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you read that and you go, okay, God is immutable. But then there are parts of Scripture that I'm reading and it seems like, wait a second, but did God change? What about this whole angry God of the Old Testament and, and happy God of the New Testament that, that we perceive? Things like that. We go, is he the same? Is he not the same? Or, or times that it seems like he changes his mind, that he was going to do something, he was to do something to Nineveh, and then he didn't do it to Nineveh. What's going on there? Does he change or does he not? So it's important to understand the definition. God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, or in other words, his attributes. He's unchanging in his purposes and promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. So while he is immutable, he is also responsive, which is just incredible and mind-blowing. God is unchanging. Let's break it down. He's unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. This line helps us to see that God's immutability, to see God's immutability more clearly. God can never change at all in who he is meaning his character never changes. He will always be completely loving, completely good, infinitely relational. Nothing about his character, his perfections change. Yet he does act and he does feel emotions. 
We read it in Genesis 6-6. The Lord regretted that he made human beings. There's, there's an emotion there that, that, he acts, that he acts upon. And yet he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. God is paying attention to us. As an example, his promises can legitimately be conditional. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, that will happen. And God is able to be responsive toward what's going on in the world. This does not interfere with his immutability, nor does it diminish his sovereignty. So as we've looked at these different concepts, there's one more word that I want you to embrace when you think about God, and that's the word and. And. Here's what a lot of us do with God. We do God a la carte. We look at the characteristics of God and say, I love the love part. I'll take that. Justice, eh, well, if somebody's being bad, okay, but not me. Um, so I want a lot of love. Some kind is really good. I like compassionate. I'm going to stock up on all those. But when it comes to things like holy, hatred of sin, justice, judgment, oh, we say things like that, like this. My God would never do that. My God would never do that. You know, every time we say my God would ever do that, you know what we're doing? The same thing the children of Israel did. We're crafting our own little idol. We're making our own little sacred cow, and we're saying, that's what I choose to worship. We can't pick or choose the parts of God we like. All of it is who God is. And if we pick and choose the parts of God we like and exclude some, we are not worshiping God. We're worshiping a self-crafted idol. So we've looked at some things this morning that feel a little contradictory. God is transcendent, and yet God is imminent. He's out there, and yet he's right here. God is holy, he hates sin, and yet he's loving and merciful and compassionate and forgiving. God is immutable, he does not change, and yet he's responsive. How does all this work together? And the human tendency is to say, I'll take one or the other, but I can't work with both. Now here's the thing, we call these contradictions, they're not contradictions. We've talked about this before, logic 101. Here's a contradiction. God is transcendent, God is not transcendent. God is holy, God is not holy. God is immutable, God is not immutable. That's a contradiction. What we have here are concepts that can live together compatibly. You can both be apart from, not part of your creation, and be close to your creation. You can be holy, hating sin, removed from sin, and yet forgive sin. You can be immutable, unchanging in your character, and yet responsive to what's going on in an ever-changing world. Concepts compatibilism. I, I told you I spent time with uh, D.A. Carson. One class in particular, he went off on a tangent. And when brilliant people go off on a tangent, you get your money's worth, right? So he's talking about this thing that's going on in modern evangelicalism, and it's really gone on in a lot of the church, where people either want to stress the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of human beings, one or the other. And, and, and D.A. Carson is like an 18-point Calvinist, okay? So he, he loves the sovereignty of God. We all should. And so he's looking and he said, here's what you need to understand about this. The following two propositions are both taught and exemplified in the Bible. God is absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. Human beings are responsible creatures. That is, they choose, they believe, they disobey, they respond, and there is moral significance in their choices. But human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God an absolute contingent. We tend to use 
one and diminish the other. We tend to emphasize one at the expense of the other. But responsible reading of Scripture prohibits such reductionism. We can't choose one or the other. If we choose one or the other, we're ignoring part of the Holy Scripture. We're we're ignoring part of the character of God. As hard as it is for many people in the Western world to come to terms with both truths at the same time, it takes a great deal of interpretive ingenuity to argue that the Bible does not support them both, because it does. He ends by saying, at Calvary, at the cross, all Christians have to concede the truth of these two statements, or or they give up their claim to be Christians. The bottom line, you want to eliminate one or eliminate the other. You don't have the gospel. It's both. Both are true. And so as you're learning about God, don't just a la carte him. Don't just cherry pick your favorite attributes and say, this is the God I choose to worship. He's all of the things that he says he is. And they are not incompatible. They're not incompatible at all. They live together in compatibility. And as we, as we think about them and as we explore them, what we find is that our minds are blown by the beautiful, wonderful complexity of God because he is incredibly complex. And yet in all of his complexity and all of his brilliance, he's willing to spend time with every one of us. It's amazing. So if you want to learn more about God the Father, there are two resources I'd commend to you. One is a book that's been out now probably about 50 years by J.A. Packer called Knowing God. In particular, the the section on God's wisdom is, is really fascinating. And there's another one, and it's much tinier. If you like to start tiny, first go there. And that's by A.W. Tozer. It's been around for a long time, but it's called The Knowledge of the Holy, where he works through, again, in more detail, all the different attributes of who God is. So, Lord, we pray that as we do dive into who you are, we would never reduce you to what we think you are, that we would really get to know the God of the Bible for who he is. And when there are those moments that something seems to be conflicting or incompatible, we would realize both can be true because you are just that complex. You are just that amazing. And if anything, the problem is that our, that our human minds are too simple and too simplistic to grasp all of who you are. And we are going to spend literally all the, rest of cre- uh, all the rest of eternity just exploring and diving into and plumbing the depths of your character. And we can't wait. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we get to experience right now some of the imminence of our God, a God who, who through his son at the Last Supper said, here's some bread and here's some wine. Take these two things and every time you take them, remember me. He didn't say bread's evil. He didn't say stay away from that juice. He said these things represent me. And so we'll be walking to communion and as we do, we sing a beautiful song that talks about coming to the altar, coming to that place. It's, it's in coming to Christ, receiving forgiveness of our sin, that we can enjoy a relationship with a holy, righteous, pure God. So let's celebrate that relationship we have with him right now as we sing. Let me go back to that letter I wrote, Kim. So um, if you knew me at 22, between my character and everything else about me, uh, Anybody with sense would look at me and say, uh-uh, no way. Uh, I, not, not lovingly, at least. They, they might, if, I, if it's Joanne again, she might look and say, now there's a fixer-upper, you know, and would enjoy the adventure of doing something with that until she burned it down. But, you know, my wife could have had anybody she wanted in the world. She said, I want you.
There's part of me in that letter that I just want to write, why did you waste your love? Why did you waste your love on me? To which I know her response. I mean, Kim's never wasted a thing in her life. She knows exactly what she's doing. This song is written in light of Luke 15 that we just studied this week in, in, the, in the workbook. And this song is not, it's entitled The Prodigal Son. It's not about the son, it's about the father. It's trying to teach a bunch of Pharisees who think that, thinks that God is wasteful with his love. He wastes his love on scummy sinners. He should be using it up on me. I'm good enough. And he goes to write, he goes to tell these three stories to say, from a human perspective, God's love looks reckless. It looks like a waste. But from the eyes of God, what did we learn? It's not that just God is loving. God is love. By his very nature, God is love. By his very nature, God is holy. He didn't waste his love on you. He gave his love to you. But as we look at it as human beings, we just go, why would you do this for me? And you know what? That is an, an absolutely appropriate human response. It is only when we come to the cross and say, why me? That God says, because of me. Because of me. Because my love is so perfect that I choose you. And so I hope you'll walk with that perspective today of the love of God. He seems to love you recklessly, but he knows exactly what he's doing. He didn't waste a bit of his love. But it's okay for us to look at him and say, why? Why? Enjoy your week.